Welcome to TLC's Trauma Pod, the trauma podcast hosted by the Lincoln Center for Family and Youth in Audubon, Pennsylvania. The Trauma Pod is a safe place to discuss trauma in all its forms and find meaningful transformational change to healing and growth. Our mission at the Lincoln Center is to transform lives and communities through education, coaching, and counseling. At our core is how we implement our values into our mission every day with our clients and students. We utilize four core values, authentic engagement, meaning-making, personalized support, and stimulated curiosity. Our podcast will seek to authentically engage you to make meaning, stimulate your curiosity, and aid you in finding personal support and connection in each of the podcasts we provide. We thank you for joining us at the Lincoln Center's Trauma Pod podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Amy Scroggin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Scroggin. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and at the Lincoln Center for Family and Youth, we pride ourselves on our commitment to the community at large to support mental health needs and breaking the stigma. As part of our commitment to equity, we want to be certain we address that mental health needs are critical for every population we serve. We're continuing to honor Black, Indigenous people of color in this podcast for their courage, contributions, and advancements to mental health. Here are two under-acknowledged contributions of BIPOC who we recognize today. Herman George Kennedy, PhD. Herman was a prominent Black clinical and social psychologist. He is credited with being the first psychologist to study the influence of rapport between an IQ test proctor and the subject, specifically researching how the race of a test proctor can create bias in IQ testing. He also helped to provide an understanding of testing environments that were suitable to help black students succeed. The second is Solomon Carter Fuller, MD. Dr. Solomon was a pioneering African-American psychiatrist who made significant contributions to the study of Alzheimer's disease. He was born in Liberia, the son of a previously enslaved African who had purchased his freedom and emigrated there. He graduated from Boston University School of Medicine, which as a homeopathic institution was open to both African-American and women's students. He spent most of his career practicing at Westboro State Mental Hospital in Westboro, Massachusetts. While there, he performed his groundbreaking research on the physical changes to the brain of Alzheimer's patients. Dr. Fuller was one of the first known black psychiatrists and work alongside Dr. Alzheimer, who first discovered the traits of Alzheimer's disease in 1901. Our topic today is the science of laughter, building resilience and connection. This topic is important to my heart because as we discuss the challenges with mental health, it is critical to find access to joy. Appropriate joy is medicine. Research shows us the importance of laughter to overall health. We will access the importance of finding joy to aid in building resilience and connection. We will also do this with an equity lens. Before we do so, we will set our intentions that help us gain focus and develop structure to our thoughts. Assumption number one. Things will work out because I have the ability to handle 
difficult situations. Number two, if I don't know what to do, I know how to utilize my support systems around me to gain the knowledge. If I am unable to do so, obtain the knowledge from others, I can learn, though it may take time. That was number three. Number four, I am a fallible human being. I forgive myself for my humanity and allow myself the grace to learn in order to gain success. Number five, laughter in trying times allows us to continually forgive ourselves and others. Number six, the only way to fail is to give up. As a special note, we would like to state our biases. I myself am a Caucasian woman and my counterpart is a Caucasian man. And so we come to this discussion as white voices. We recognize that a discussion about equity is in that lens. However, it is important that we identify that and examine equity at large with regards to mental health. So I want to take this opportunity to welcome Eric, who's the co-host. How are you doing? Hi. Hi. Good. So today, it's sort of a large topic um, that we're going to filter down into a smaller topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to address that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. It um, it's sort of the bread and butter of what we do at the Lincoln Center for mental Family health. and Youth mm-hmm. is mental health. Um, as well as substance abuse and trauma and other things as well, but mental health being overarching what we do. Mm-hmm. And we also want to, to let you know that uh, July is Black Indigenous People of Color Mental Health Awareness Month. So we'll be getting more into that, but we will be addressing you know equity uh, with regards to Black Indigenous People of Color. And for those individuals, when we use the terminology BIPOC, that stands for Black, comma, Indigenous, comma, People of Color. So it really encompasses a wide variety mm-hmm. um, of populations. It's an inclusive group, right, right, it's an inclusive group, and that's our intention um, as we utilize that today. So as we start to talk about Mental Health Awareness Month, I wanted to start by utilizing the latest information from the Center um, for Disease. Um, as CDC. So I wanted to use CDC's 2021 data. And during August 2020 to February 2021, the percentage of adults with recent symptoms of an anxiety or depressive disorder increased from 36% to 42%. So that's wow. that's a jump. I think we all were aware that was probably something that was going to happen, although statistics are coming in. Um, yeah, you could probably intuit the idea that you know, shutting down uh, businesses, people staying home, being afraid of a, a deadly virus would increase people's sense of tension, sadness, isolation, worry, things like that. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, CDC even kind of addresses the fact that anytime there's a large disease outbreak, um, mm-hmm. mental health problems have been associated with that. Yes. Um, so I don't want to say we're out of trend, um, <laughs> unfortunately. Um But in addition to that, the percentage of those reporting unmet mental health needs has increased from about 9% to about 12% as well. Um, And those increases, the largest population who's been uh, affected by that are adults between the age of 18 and 29. Um, Younger people. And those, Mm -hmm. uh, they're identifying with less than a high school education. Um, I haven't read all of the details there, but I guess that's the the two highest groups they're seeing at this Mm -hmm. point in time. So as we're addressing this, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about what this has been like in our work, um, especially as we're seeing, you know, I know you, you work at a school, so you see a lot of teenagers. Yeah. Uh, what are you seeing right now? 
Yeah, it's fascinating, you know, having two different experiences before and during and after uh, the outbreak situation. Um, you're just talking about very different problems. Uh, a lot of hopelessness, a lot of feeling strung out, a lot of feeling burnt out, a lot of kids. Um, I'm working with just report feeling like, again, they have like nothing left in the tank. There's They're just sort of waiting for life to kind of return to normal. Um, it's sort of an extended uh, stress. And I think that, you know, eventually kids uh, reach a limit about what they can handle. Even the kids I've worked with that I would describe as resilient and buoyant and bubbly and, and happy are showing me sort of um, that they've crossed the line into sadness and worry. So, um, you know, the types of problems I'm dealing with um, with the students this year is just clearly it's, it's like night and day, very different problems. Yeah, definitely seeing the wear and tear after this uh, amount of time. Um, I think I was discussing with somebody how many days it's technically been mm -hmm. since all this this happened and um to hear the number four uh 400 come up right. was um not what i expected to hear though i already knew it in my head um but the idea of like 400 when we you know thought it was a lot to be back at 68 or you know 70 days right um, and, and the discussion at the beginning was okay for two weeks we're going to stay home it's going to flatten the curve we're going to keep people out of the hospital by staying home it's going to fix everything um, and, and obviously things have been different since the beginning of the pandemic with, with things relaxing and people getting vaccinated. But uh, yeah, people are, people are waiting. They're tapping their toes. They're ready for this to be done. Well, I think it's, it's time too for us to start to look into what happened in 1919 um, and really identify what kind of, you know, mental health struggles were happening then as well as now um, to, to normalize some of the adjustment period we're going to have coming back of people of all ages. Um, I mean, I think some people are functioning just fine, um, especially if they've gotten their vaccine. I'm hearing, you know, I'm, I'm happy to go back to work. I'm happy to, you know, be moving on. When a lot of other individuals are struggling with continued substance abuse, I'm hearing a lot about relapse uh, right now and um, a lot of struggles with families. Um is primarily what I'm hearing, uh, in addition to, you know, severe mental health um, issues with depression and anxiety as well. You and I were talking about this off mic uh, a couple weeks ago, this idea that we tend to see substance abuse and overdoses and, you know, people ad being admitted to rehab kind of spiking in the spring and summer because people are outside more, they're congregating more, they're having parties more. People, places, and things. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, as opposed to sort of the quote-unquote isolation of the winter. Uh, and as things are sort of opening up and people are vaccinated and they're going to see each other, you know, you and I kind of uh, talked about the dangers of um, ODing. Uh, people who have yes. not maybe had access to substances of choice uh, their body had maybe had reset to a sense of uh, homeostasis without the substance and then maybe jumping back in with uh, the spring and summer months that could be a very dangerous time so we have to be very aware of that right and I think in addition people who are relapsing uh, relapsing utilizing the same quantity right. you know that they may have been using before um, is unfortunately something that happens all the time with relapse but can be deadly. Um, and so something we want to watch out for. But, you know, as we talk about 
um, mental health. Uh, you know, I, I want to address this equity issue before we get into mm-hmm. too much because I, I also want to discuss the populations that are associated with um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, which is BIPOC. So, you know, uh, Mental Health America is reporting that um, the percent of African Americans with mental illness currently are 17 percent. And that's, uh, they're addressing that of that percentage, 6.8 million are, you know, is the is the population uh, with mental illness. Um, that's higher than the last statistic I remember reading. So it, it seems to be on trend with with what's happening with the overall number. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Latino, Latino and Hispanic American communities, um, the percent of mental illness is 15 percent. OK. Um, mm-hmm. With mental illness uh, population being 8.9 percent. 8.9 million. I'm sorry, 8.9 million, yeah. forgive me. So, um, you know, there's a lot, and the incarceration rates are a, a lot higher with um, Hispanic Americans as well. And so we're talking about, um, unfortunately, with uh, mental illness, that, that happening in some of our prisons is with, um, you know, prison wow. systems. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a discussion in itself. That it is. We, you know, this time last year, people were starting to ask questions about, so this is, it's May now. This time of last year, people were asking questions about how safe are our uh, felons and, and our people who right. are in custody because they're in such small quarters. They're not set up to give social distance situations. Uh, they're not being given, you know, masks or, or, or access to high quality health care. So they're at a at a unique risk uh, of having the infection. Right. And I had mentioned um, that specifically. I, I was giving a presentation today where we were talking about the importance of um, the incarceration rates for both black and um, Hispanic and Latino and Latino uh, populations mm-hmm. um, and how they are they're higher as a sense of you know social injustice. Um, you know, so just just a consideration um, as we're talking about that as well. The Asian American and Pacific um, Islander community mental health is illness is thirteen percent, um, okay. with the population being two point two million. Um, and Native and Indigenous communities, um, which is this is no surprise to me, but it's. it's it is a large number. A uh, percentage of Native American and Alaskan natives with mental illness is twenty three percent, with the population being only eight hundred thirty thousand. So that that to me is just so much of that population is suffering with mental illness. How are we addressing that with their, with you know, cultural competency? That's um, almost one in four. Yeah, uh, Native. And Alaskan Native Amer- uh, Americans suffering from mental illness, which represents uh, wow, almost a million uh, Native Americans. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's pretty significant. It's a big number. I mean, that's a topic in and of itself as well, because we could talk about the injustice uh, surrounding that. Um, not only its own podcast, but probably its own series. Um, but I also want to identify uh, multiracial populations. And this percent of people who identify as being two or more races with mental illness of 25%. Oh, wow, that's higher than So, it, yeah, it's even higher than Native and Indigenous communities. Um, so people who identify as being two or more races are more likely to report any mental illness when the, within the past year than other any other race or ethnic group. So you're talking about multiple system injustice 
um, than a multiracial injustice. So um, going towards, you know, mental health as well. So those two two topics are also separate, but they have a, you know, a Venn diagram in the middle of how they. Right. And, and it's important to point one. out uh, from like a causality perspective, we're not saying we're reporting that the ethnicity is the variable that that ha- no. having blackness or nativeness is what causes mental health of so much as that yeah. we see the third variable sort of being access um the the lived equity. experience equity all of these things contribute to um a higher rate of negative life experiences that can result with mental health um you know just the study of substance abuse in native american culture alone would, would tell us something about the co-occurring disorders, the the trauma, all of these things, generational trauma. You, we, like you said, we could probably just do an entire show on uh, the effect of mental health and substance abuse on our reservations alone. Uh, absolutely. And finally, um, you know, percent of individuals who identify as LGBTQIA plus with mental illness is 37%. That's higher that- than one in three. And their population is 3.9 million. Um, and they, these statistics are from Mental Health America, if anybody wanted to look into these further. Wow. So, you know, I mean, that's a lot of information and statistics I just gave everybody. Yeah. Um, but really the point, you know, being is that we really need to um, be addressing this systemically. We need to be addressing it from a mental health perspective about how we treat patients and how we offer access and... Um, you know, how we really help these communities to reduce these percentages, um, you know, and, and that's a longstanding um, problem that we're going to have to work on. Um, and we're not going to fix that today, obviously. But um, I just wanted to put that out there as we're talking about Mental Health Awareness Month, that people consider these things as they encounter different populations, as they um, as they're treating individuals, um, as they're wondering why different populations may, may not go uh, for mental health care, that there's absolute access problems for these these populations as well. We're talking about uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, and we're, we just kind of went through, you know, the overlap between mental health challenges and these different um, minority groups. And I think this is a great opportunity to talk about uh, not just recognizing that mental health is a problem that we as a, as a culture need to be dealing with. Um, sometimes we target the conversation around mental health as being specifically about counseling um, right. or access to therapy. And I think that while that is clearly a very effective, uh, time-tested, scientifically evidence-based approach to dealing with mental health, I think there is a larger conversation, maybe maybe for another time, about um, institutional and systemic forces that impose mental health challenges on these populations. Right. You know, I'm hearing things like, uh, you know, there's this push right now for raising the minimum wage. And there's an argument to be made that, you know, if you pay individuals in uh, low-income areas more money, that is one way of dealing with mental health. You know, people who aren't struggling with their finances tend to have fewer challenges with their mental health. Um, uh, things like access to low-income housing or affordable housing or programs. These are all things, if you can inject and infuse hope and resources into these communities, that is a way not of 
just treating mental health, but preventing some of these challenges from happening to begin with, which is an important part of this conversation. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and maybe even something that we should really come back to um, in July when we're honoring um, BIPOC Mental Health Awareness Month as well, just so we can dedicate enough time and um, really get into the topic in a meaningful way. Um, so it, it seems that so the topic that we've chosen today, the science of laughter, seems almost um, the other side of the spectrum mm-hmm. <laughs> as we're discussing oh, serious um, mental health problems, <laughs> right? Groups, um, so. But the science of laughter and building resilience and connection. And so I'm going to offer my bias, which is that I think um, that laughter in itself is is one of the primary ways of building resilience. Um, in addition to um, some of the other great ways that mental health clinicians give, you know, um, to their clients as, as ways to build resilience. Um, but I, I believe as a person who has suffered with mental health myself, a person who um, has sustained trauma over a lifetime um, with sexual abuse, um, that building resilience and connection really can be uh, accessed through laughter. And um, connect, really that connection piece, I think, is really critical for most people. But accessing joy helps our body. Um, and there's statistics ab- about that. Okay. Um, but more, I want to give you a couple of facts that we can talk about. Ooh, facts. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to go through some short-term benefits. Um, and one is that laughter actually stimulates many organs. This is something I, I did not know prior to researching this, um, that laughter enhances your intake of oxygen-rich air. That part makes sense. Stimulates your heart, lungs, and muscles and increases the endorphins that are released by your brain. So the fact that laughter can help stimulate many of your organs in your body is kind of, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to affect the way well, you're talking about the heart, the lungs, you're thinking about laughing. And muscles. Breathing right? and all these things. It's a little mini workout, right? You're getting things are moving around, right? You're laughing, right? And, um, and we, we've learned too that laughter is a natural thing. Yeah, we we observe laughter in our primate cousins. You know, mm-hmm. They they laugh uh, right. in certain situations. So we recognize that laughter is very natural. It's something that we inherit. It's not it's not purely cultural. You know, we would laugh if we didn't have stand up comedy or yeah. you know, the works of Shakespeare. We would still be laughing. Laughter is also a universal language. You don't have to speak the same language, but um, laughter is something that anyone can understand. Yes. Um, not everyone has the same type of laughter or the same type of humor, but um, right. but laughter itself. Okay, so another fact is it can activate and release your stress response, which yes. does make sense. Yes. Um, a good laugh fires up and then cools down your stress response, and it can increase and then decrease your heart rate and blood pressure. Um, so it ends up giving you the result of a good and relaxed feeling. Um, that's something that makes sense. I feel like I knew that. Yeah. And you kind of like think of laughter as being sort of like, uh, akin to crying that, that you go through a laughing fit and then you feel like relieved, like as though, like if you are upset, you cry, you do feel relieved. It's like a release of some of this energy. And, you know, there's all these discussions about laughter being the best medicine. I don't, I don't know if that's, um. Backed up by by, <laughs> by science, science. But I think that we can, <laughs> laughter is a medicine. It is a form of medicine, right. obviously, um, and it's important for our health um, to be laughing. Right. I think um, 
The next one is something that I've experienced myself with, which is that laughter can soothe tension. Laughter can also stimulate circulation, aid muscle relaxation, both of which can help reduce some of the physical symptoms of stress. Now, I actually think and can recall a few times where laughter has actually ended fights. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it breaks, <laughs> and, the, breaks the ice yeah, right. a little bit. And soothe that tension in between and w- Almost as if you cannot go back to where you were before the laughter happened. Yeah, um, yeah. it's like a, it's like a, it's not a rising action; it's a falling action. It, it creates this sense of resolution, this sense of ease. And I, I think that you know the the topic you're getting into is this idea of using laughter um, in the therapeutic alliance in that relationship. And obviously, if two people can be relaxed enough to laugh together that there is an intimacy there, there's a vulnerability there, and there's some joining. So it's, it's an activity we tend to do together. Right. Um, before uh, we started this, I was looking through different things about laughter. And one of the things we recognize, it it is sort of contagious. Like when you mm-hmm. hear someone laughing, even on a recording, it primes you to join them. You know, you're laughing along with, with them. And I think that's really... Uh, it speaks to the universal experience of wanting to join people in laughter. Well, I think one of the things that I enjoy is watching bloopers of things where people are laughing. And you'll often see that if one person is laughing, the other person starts laughing. Right. right? right. Um, so some of the longer term effects. Um, one is that it improves your immune system. That is something mm. I did not know. Um, negative thoughts manifest into chemical reactions. Okay, that first part. Negative thoughts manifest into chemical reactions that can affect your body by bringing more stress into your system and decreasing your immunity. By contrast, positive thoughts can actually release neuropeptides that help fight stress and potentially more serious illnesses. I mean, that's great, especially for some of our um, immune deficient population. I mean, obviously, again, we're not... we're not, you know, saying essentially that laughter is a replacement for, you know, medical real science yeah, and medical right, treatment. Right. But the I'm fact prescribe you three chuckles. But I think it's important when we talk about mental health as clinicians, um, and, and this is for the larger population too, that we are also allowing for holistic therapeutic treatments um, that allow you to access things without necessarily, you know, we want to reduce the amount of. Um, People that are using um, anti-anxiety medication whenever possible because they can become addicted to them. You know, what are some ways that we can access multiple approaches um, to kind of minimize, um, you know, one reliance on a coping tool or skill? Right. And and it's hard to imagine the situation where laughing uh, would be putting you in at risk, you know, you know, you're right. about using substances, you're talking about ODing and, you know, negative um, health effects. I, I, I don't think there are a lot of situations where if you're finding something funny, you're thinking, well, I probably shouldn't laugh because I'm going to, you know, I've got a condition. <laughs> right. The side effects are, are low. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Low to There's none. no addiction to laughing. Sure. <laughs> I mean, there is inappropriate laughter, right? Like we all, and especially as clinicians, I think we're all kind of tense up around the idea of laughter because we don't want to ever make someone feel less than or that we're not taking their situation seriously. But I'm talking about an overall, um, not just a therapeutic approach, but an overall connection to, you know, laughter as we discuss um, how it, how it helps individuals. Um, yeah, we, we can have a longer conversation about like times in which laughter 
is hurtful, time where laughter is inappropriate, um, and times where sometimes laughter can be an indication of um, you know, anger or delusion. I mean, laughter is sure. something that can be related to other things, but we're talking about... There's a dark about, side to laughter. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that we're, we're sort of talking about this sort of very kind of loose, fun, like you're enjoying something that's humorous, that you're joining with other people. That's sort of like a universal experience of laughter versus like a, a specific hurtful or, or, or almost um, threatening. You know, oh, basically. right. Absolutely. And we should we should address that for sure. Um, I think accessing joy is something that a lot of individuals who have mental health challenges have trouble doing. Um, and so, you know, it's low mood, low affect, um, you know, how can we kind of challenge that in a way, um, that's meaningful to people in accessing that joy again. So, uh, you know, another one of the long-term effects is relieving pain. So laughter can actually release pain by causing the body to produce its own natural painkillers. You'll have to excuse us. We have a new puppy and we can probably hear her in the background. So if you hear her, (laughs) she's trying to join in, she's trying to join in, um, Right. So relieving pain. I mean, um, I would say that's a new one. I would probably, for me, and I would also say that's probably one that most people might turn their head to the side and go, "Mm, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's science. It has validity, but um, again, it's not a replacement for anything. Um, It's literally telling you that it's releasing chemicals into your brain brain that are, um, you know, similar to painkillers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's important to point out that like sometimes when we're dealing with mental health, and I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, one of the signs that a person may be in the deepest, darkest parts of their depression is they might say, I haven't laughed in weeks. I haven't laughed in months. I don't find anything funny enough to laugh about. Um, and so sometimes it's laughter has to be kind of built up to and earned. One thing I was thinking about when you were talking was about um, somatic complaints. That sometimes with depression um, or anxiety, you can have, or other uh, mental health situations, you can have somatic complaints in your body. Um, so, you know, it's very gestaltian to um, to address the fact that sometimes people hold right. their trauma or mental health issues Tension, in specific parts of their body. Yeah. Um, you know, relaxing certain areas may come naturally with a la- with laughter because of muscle relaxation, um, you know, and therefore relieving pain in somatic areas would be so one way. What you're saying is laughter is like radical internal yoga. <laughs> right. I mean, I <laughs> I think, funny, I think overall that laughter is actually the init- the uh, that awkward initiation phase into um you know progressive muscle relaxation right. Uh, techniques right is that you're actually just relaxing your muscles through your own body it's like a tensing um, relaxing relationship with your muscles and and laughter is one of the things like exercise or yoga or, or things like that it just happens to also work out your heart and your lungs yeah so another long-term effect is increasing personal satisfaction. That laughter can also make it easier to cope with difficult situations. It helps you connect with other people. This one for me is the one of the ones that connects to me the most is that I get a lot of personal satisfaction for myself um, with connecting through laughter. 
Um, right. You know, and I, I actually love making other people laugh as well. Um, so when I can. Um, you know, that connection piece is something that's lost in mental health. You know, we talk a lot about how uh, mental health diagnoses can be very isolating. Right. And so... And trauma itself, you know, is a broken connection with the own with your body and with others. With the um, so finding ways to naturally connect to your body and, and to others um, can be really important in healing. I agree. Another long term effect is improving your mood, which seems self explanatory. If you're laughing, you're probably <laughs> um, many people who experience depression and sometimes due to chronic. Um, illnesses, laughter can help lessen your depression and anxiety and make you feel happier. It can give you that relief you need at times um, to understand that everything is so serious, you know, that you can still access that joy. Yeah, I think laughter is also sort of like, it's a way of taking your own temperature. If you if you know you're laughing, you, you, you kind of tell yourself like, I'm having a good time. I'm, I'm enjoying this, you know, moment with my friend or this thing on TV or a joke someone told me, you know, the, or a funny meme or, or something like that. It, it's an indicator like, oh, like maybe things aren't so bad. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, humor absolutely can be learned as well. It can be a learned behavior. Um, you know, it can be something that you do for yourself. Um, it doesn't take up a lot of time. Um you know, watching even a funny show after something that ha- that's happened that's really upsetting can help you access that part of yourself that knows that things might things will be okay. You know, I, I will be able to find my way my way back again. And so I talk a lot about um, with some of the populations that I work with um, the idea of bounce back and resilience. And mm-hmm. so I think the one way you know when your resilience is building and growing is. You know, typically if it takes you a week to bounce back from an episode or something that may be happening, if it's taking you less time, you know, um, time is a factor in resilience. You know, if you're noticing it's now down to a couple of days, um, you know, that that's a good thing. It means that you're bouncing back faster and right. your body is getting more used to resilience. Your brain is getting more used to resilience. Um, so for me, I feel like laughter really helps connect and build that resilience when it comes to the self. Yeah, and I think this is another great time to mention that if we can laugh about our own problems, that's a it's a it's a very positive perspective because it means that we're both taking things seriously and not seriously. And then there's sort of like this step beyond, and and, and I know we've all worked uh, as mental health professionals with um, this feeling of like, oh, this person is making too many. Uh, jokes about mental health and it seems like maybe part of the challenge here is that they're either overusing their sense of humor or that they maybe lack the perspective to take some of the things seriously or they're in a way protecting themselves from feeling the seriousness of a problem by using humor as what freud might call a defense mechanism like you're protecting yourself from seeing the seriousness by making a joke about it And I think that's like where you say like, oh, like there are times where you really want to be able to access your sense of humor, but let's get in touch with what's really happening here and talk about the gravity of the situation. Maybe there's like an opposite approach to in counseling of, of moving from the humor to the seriousness. If you feel like that's 
what the, the client needs or the student needs. I think we can all agree that if things are too heavy, levity is needed. Like levity yes. is needed for perspective. Yes. But I think that if there's too much levity, there can be, like you said, either a defense mechanism going on or um, a denial of being able to access the problem. And sometimes inappropriate laughter can be a medical diagnosis as well. Sure. Um, you know, that we've, you know, we're all taught as clinicians that, you know, kind of eliminate the medical concerns first. Um, you know, sometimes people uh, with de deteriorating um, diseases can can laugh at very inappropriate times. Um, and also, you know, making considerations for populations on the autism spectrum who may have social issues as well, you know. So laughter, like anything else, I think, in mental health has to have a balance. You know, we have to use those scales of justice, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, when we utilize anything. Um, there has to be some some balance in our lives. Moderation. But, too, yeah, yeah, some moderation. Is probably a better word. I think also it's important to, and maybe I kind of alluded to this earlier, part of using humor in sessions um, as a clinician is I think you do have to earn it a little bit, you know, being able to help us a client or a student laugh at their problem. Oh, absolutely. Um, if, if you have, if you've made fun of a client uh, to their face and you haven't earned the right to, to go there, you know, and to use oh, the, well, that type of humor, you might actually end up turning that person away or offending them or hurting their feelings. Or destroying the therapeutic alliance. Yeah. And it's important to say like, you know, I, I would give the advice uh, for people who are working with clients, uh, you know, use it sparingly at first because you don't, you don't want to overuse some of these kind of like joy, humor and laughter exercises because it might, it might create the sense of, okay, well, this person's just here to like have a good time. They're not here to talk to me about what's really going on. It, it, again, there's a moderation issue there too. I think um, also, and this may not be the right word, but this is a word I'm thinking of right now, is that laughter between two people needs to be consensual. <laughs> and what I mean by the word consensual is that if you're making a joke at someone else's expense, it's not something they're enjoying. That's not appropriate laughter. If you are having a... Uh, a laugh together about something it right. can be very healing and connecting um but it also can be very disconnecting if someone feels that it's at their expense um or that they don't understand it yeah we all have a friend or a group of friends where we can rib each other and tease each other and i think that 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 can be something that you again i said i said earlier like you earn you do things. you earn your place there um but I think that it's important to recognize trying to make jokes at other people's expense is a huge risk because oh yeah, you're, I think you're kind of rolling the dice on this idea of, wow, I could have really offended or hurt this person. And so one of the things we teach younger kids um, and our kids who need some social skill development is you have to consider, will, will there be anyone besides you that thinks what you said is funny? And if it's only you that's, that thinks it's funny... Um, kind of the the wisdom is maybe that's something you chuckle about to yourself, not right. with other attitudes. Uh, and maybe, stuff. again, those social skills um, are not there. But the science is behind laughter. You know, the science is showing us these, these long-term and short-term effects um, and the stress relief that can come from laughter as well. Right. And so, you know, as we kind of come to a close here um, about Mental Health Awareness Month, um, this is just one of many ways um, to use positive coping skills. Yeah.
and if done so appropriately can help connect you to others can help build resilience in yourself um and also can be something that's free and (laughs) something you can do with your own body and Mm -hmm. you know in times where we're still um sort of isolated from from one another um it's something that that you have right within you yeah and it's funny too i i I I could tell you there's a lot of clients I've worked with or students I've worked with that have said um, one of the things that they have connected to the most is comedy. Um, because comedy, if, if you think of it as an art form, is a storytelling art form. It's a philosophy art form where people are talking about reactions to situations and they're expressing themselves. And I think a lot of times comedy can be something that people see as a a therapeutic activity. Um, famously, um, the late Robin Williams um, battled with depression, he and did. he would use going on stage as a way of dealing with his low mood. And he he would say um, to comedy club proprietors, like, "Can I take some time tonight to go on stage?" And of course, they would say, "Oh my gosh, like, of course we want you yeah. up there." Um, but he he almost saw it as something he had to ask permission for. Yes. Please let me do this because it helps me so much to make other people laugh, to laugh with them. And I, I think that's a great um, example of how laughter can be such a joining and therapeutic and, and um, helpful coping strategy. Absolutely. And I actually have um, sort of a story about Robin Williams' laughter. Um, so I went to Germantown Academy in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, and our Belfry teacher, Vince Campbell, who has since passed away, mm-hmm. um, told us a story about how he worked on Dead Poet Society right. um, in the lighting department and how part of their payment <laughs> um, was that they would get an hour a day of just Robin Williams just improv and he said he'd never laughed harder in his life and he remembers walking away from that experience um feeling like he should have paid for it you know like they're right you know that it was um so enriching for him and i remember the smile on his face when he used to talk about it and um you know that i feel like robin williams is actually a great example of um what we're talking about today you know mental health awareness day and also laughter um and sadly you know robin williams took his own life um, so as we come to a close with all of this, I want to thank you guys for joining us today. Um, as always, I want to encourage you if, um, you feel that you are going to self harm or, um, you are in a place that's really dark, please reach out to someone. Um, we have the national suicide prevention hotline. Um, it's 1-800-273-8255 and it's available 24 hours a day. Um, please don't, Please don't be alone in these feelings. Please reach out to someone. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we look forward to, to talking to you all again. Take care. Thank you.